When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikirska. This is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the government's plan to transition people from the CERB, the CERB, to EI why the price of used vehicles is going up in Canada, and why Canada Post is still struggling in the midst of an e-commerce boom. We're also going to dig into online versus bricks and mortar and how businesses should be approaching and balancing that. Now, to get through all those topics, I am joined once again by Mark Satov. He is the founder of Satov Consultants and a business strategy expert, and he's here to help find ideas and solutions for businesses that are dealing with the pandemic. Mark, welcome back to the show. It's nice of you to step away from watching tennis to join us today. Tennis season has begun finally, and my time is at a premium. I should charge everybody more for my time during this time. But uh, I'm, I'm actually very excited about today's show because we're going to talk about uh, a range of topics. There's a, a, th- a common theme through a couple of them, which are just sort of basic economics, supply and demand, and how markets work and should work. And so I'm really interested in these topics. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So let's start with one of the biggest financial aid programs that the government uh, unveiled through the coronavirus pandemic. And that, of course, is the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, also known as the CERB. Um, That program has been extended for a few more weeks through to the end of September. And the government has also unveiled a plan to transition people that are currently on CERB over to EI. Um, Ottawa expects that most people that are currently claiming CERB will be automatically switched to EI. Um, And there's also three new specific benefits for people who wouldn't normally qualify for EI under the current system. Um, I know this is a program that that CERB has that businesses have been discussing throughout this pandemic. Um, But Mark, what do you make of the change and and this focus on shifting people over to EI? Well, I mean, I think they had to do something because I don't think we're at a period where we can say there's not significant risk to the economy if a bunch of people just went without an income. And, you know, I don't mean to be crass because you need to look at it uh, for the economy at large and, and obviously to alleviate suffering for those specific people. I think there will come a time where we will say that we are in a recession and a normal recession. I think we're still in what we would call an extraordinary recession in terms of when the unemployment rate. But we will soon get back to a point where the unemployment rate is high, higher than normal times and not higher than a recession. And at that point, I I would argue, without being an economist, that you may just want to get back to regular rules for EI. Uh, And one of 
the things I've noticed, and I've, I've said it in many instances, is that every time they make a change to the program, they have an opportunity to adapt the conditions. And I don't have an issue with the fact that they are, again, alleviating suffering, uh, making the economy and lives sustainable in many instances, but I don't think it is as precise as it can be. And I think that uh, they, have an they had an opportunity here to make it more precise by targeting the criteria a little bit more and making sure that people actually find some way to prove that they are the ones who need it more uh, and that other ones who need it less don't get it so that we actually leave money. I'm not, uh, I'm not suggesting that we aren't, shouldn't help those who need it. I want to make sure that we have enough to help those who need it as much as they need. Right. Yeah. I think I, I read a report, uh, an analysis somewhere that um, I believe it's something like 4.8 million people that are currently on CERB and of them under the normal EI rules, only about 1.4 million would qualify. So obviously some kind of program had to be introduced to make sure that those people uh, weren't left out in the cold because, I mean, we are still, as you mentioned, in a recession and uh, who, who knows when when the economy is going to be at full steam again. Right. Yeah. But again, a recession, we don't change the EI rules every recession, right? The EI, uh, you know, the EI bank, if you'll call it, uh, you know, gets drained during a recession and should get filled when we're not in a recession. And so I don't think we need to wait to be out of a recession. We just need to be wait, uh, out of a very deep recession or a very special recession. Uh, you know, the other thing that they did, which I'm sure you noticed, is they changed the requirement for EI in the future. So what they've said is, you normally have to have 400 and something hours in the past 52 weeks to have qualified for EI with, you know, the idea that they are, uh, you know, giving people back the insurance that they paid in. I mean, it's called employment insurance. So you pay the insurance mm -hmm. when you're employed and then you uh, get the benefit when you're not. And they've reduced that to 120 hours. And I think that's interesting. I get that many people would not have been employed during the last six months. And so what I would have done to make it more precise was say, okay, back up six months, but still keep the same 420 hours or whatever it is. I think that, I, I don't know all the ins and outs. I think there's a range of requirements, but it's from 400 to 600. So I would have said, back it up six months. So you sort of get rid of this period where a lot of people weren't employed and then keep the same uh, requirement. Because essentially what you're doing now is you're saying that people who were not employed before who didn't pay into EI uh, are getting the same benefit. And again, that's not really fair to me, which is not to say that we don't need to find a way to help those in need, but we have other programs, other social assistance programs, which are designed for people who are not employed or not employable. And so I just think they've sort of mixed things here. Yeah, although I do wonder how much of those rule changes are to catch the people that are, you know, working as gig workers, the gig economy is kind of the way it seems it's becoming more and more, uh, maybe not importance the right word, but bigger, um, more people are working that way. So maybe that was the thinking behind that. But um, the whole the gig economy, that's something we can probably spend. It's very, I was going to say that I was going to say we may want to talk about the gig economy another episode, because it's one of those things that I hear everybody talking about anecdotally. Uh, I've yet mm -hmm. to see real stats that show us that it is way larger than it used to be. But everybody talks about the gig economy like it's the biggest thing. And so uh, I think let's have a whole show, the gig economy show. Yeah, yeah. 
tune into our next episode <laughs> and we will dig into that. Um, okay, so I do want to discuss a story that uh, I actually wrote today. If you want to check it out, please visit Yahoo Finance Canada. And it's about used vehicles, specifically what's happening to pricing. Uh, basically, it turns out the price of a used vehicle is going up in Canada for a whole bunch of reasons. First, we're seeing, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit here longer than I usually do, just uh, because I did write the story. Um, there's supply issues at hand. That's due in part to the fact that car auctions had to uh, uh, close down because they were considered a non-essential business. And that is a key supplier of vehicles for used car dealerships. Um, someone had described it to me as essentially a used car factory. That's where a lot of dealers get their cars. Um, and at the same time, we are seeing demand go up. That's due in part, again, to pent up demand because dealerships were uh, non-essential businesses that had to shut in the early days of the pandemic. But anecdotally, we're also hearing about people in cities or, or other areas that are buying cars for the first time. Um, sales from the U.S. are also a factor because of the dollar. But um, I know I've covered off a lot here. But Mark, uh, when you're looking at the price of a used vehicle in Canada, I mean, what do you think is the biggest factor at play here? Well, for, it was great that you talked a lot because I read the article and there were lots of interesting aspects in there. So, um, you know, when I at the top of the show, I said there are some stories on the show that relate to the laws of supply and demand and used cars are one of them. And it's first of all, at the auctions, you have a very sort of natural sort of raw capitalism thing going on where, uh, you know, you have people bidding on cars. Uh, and they get bid to the natural price. Uh, it's the way I like to buy cars, by the way. Now I have somebody uh, who's a dealer who's authorized and they go and buy used cars for me at the auction uh, and I pay them a fee. It's all legitimate. Yeah, I've never been, but I've, I'm very intrigued by them now. <laughs> like, I want to go to a used the car The question auction. is, do they are, are they are they the same places where they have like cattle auctions and is there like a car and then a cow? I don't think so. Um, no. So, um, so there's a very natural supply and demand thing that goes on with used cars, which is very different than new cars. Because if you are a dealer, then uh, you are, uh, let's say you're selling a Toyota Highlander Hybrid, which is the car that my wife and I uh, really like, and are, that's going to be our next car when we when we get to it. Um, well, you know, Toyota has decided that the price for that all in is $54,926. And so the dealer has a little bit of wiggle room in terms of how much they're going to discount, but they don't make that much money on it because they make money on uh, F&I uh, and service. So that's financing and insurance and service. Uh, and they don't have much wiggle room because everybody knows the exact price of a fully loaded Highlander hybrid. But if you sort of say, okay, well, what about a three-year-old Subaru Legacy that has 61,000 kilometers on it, that has a chip over here and a scratch over there uh, and was in an accident? Well, it originally retailed for 40,000 and now is it 26,000? Is it 24,000? Well, the more people want it and the, the fewer of them that are available, the more the price goes up the basic laws of supply and demand. And so what we're seeing is that the price is going up because the supply is curtailed. I am not worried about the supply being curtailed for an extended period of time. I think the auctions have capacity. So it's not like there's a huge backlog. Uh, and a lot of the auctions, mm -hmm. by the way, are online. And so uh, going back to, you know, my car guy, uh, you know, he'll show me the screens, you know, last time I bought a car and he sort of says, okay, am I getting that one? Am I reserving that one for you? Uh, he's got to go pick it up and whatnot. So, I think the supply can catch up. I think the demand is an interesting one because I do think we see that a lot of people 
in an ideal world, would like to pick up a used car now, I'm not sure that they're all realistic about what they're going to get and what they're going to get it for. Because it's easy to say, you know, oh, well, you know, I've never had a car and I take the TTC and I spend uh, $400 a month and I now like to go and uh, get a used car and I'm going to spend roughly the same. But you can't finance a used car for the same in the same way that you finance a new car because you don't have OEM incentives. Uh, and as we're talking about, the supply and demand dynamics of the market may make that used car more expensive than you would have otherwise thought. So it'll be interesting to see how many people are aiming to buy a car uh, and what's their sort of what's their sort of cap in price. So are they going to just keep going or are they just going to give up mm -hmm. and say, well, you know what, I'll take the subway and wear a mask. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see when that supply and demand mismatch that we're clearly seeing in the market kind of resolves itself. And then another interesting aspect of this, I think, is the the trade-ins are definitely down because of that pause. And, you know, a lot of people were able to get lease extensions because, you know, if they had to return their car in March, that wasn't about to happen. And so I think we'll, we'll have to watch closely over the next few months and see how that supply issue sorts itself out and whether prices do end up going down. I have to give the viewers a free tip. Uh, don't trade in your car. Here's what happens when you trade in a car. So if you trade in your car to a place that has the same brand that you're buying a car from, well, then they will fix it up and maybe the OEM will put one of these certified pre-owned stamps on it and they will sort of hose you on the price a little. But if you are buying uh, a Toyota and you go to the Toyota dealership with a Honda, if that Toyota dealer owner doesn't have another Honda dealership, all that guy is doing is he's calling his car guy or he's going to the auction and then he's selling at the mm -hmm. auction where a very low price, and then some other dealer is buying it at the auction. And so there's, besides the fact that it's not transparent and you're not gonna get a good deal anyway, there's so many hands that it's passing through. So do not trade in your cars. You are giving the dealers way too much margin. Find a car guy like I have and let him go to the auction for you. Free tip okay, for the viewers. Lots of, yeah, lots of advice here, but um, I do, there's one more story that I want to get to before we move on to the fix. Uh, so let's talk about Canada Post. The Crown Corporation reported its second quarter earnings. And despite the fact that people are shopping online more than ever before, um, and that Canada Post actually delivered as much in the second quarter as it usually does over its Christmas season, which is the peak period, um, they're still struggling. Uh, E-commerce related growth was still not enough to make up for declining revenues in direct marketing and business mail. Mark, if Canada Post can't report a profit at this kind of peak e-commerce, peak parcel time, um, do you think they, like, when will they? What do you think? Well, uh, it, it's a uh, it's a complicated story, and I'll tell you. What, first of all, Canada Post has been a client in the past. I always like to disclose when I remember that uh, they've been a client, and uh, I will obviously not share anything that's public uh, that's not public. It is obvious to everybody, and they've stated that they are trying to transition from being a company, an organization that handed out letters, to an organization that ships out parcels, and they do that in two ways. One way is through the mail carriers that they have, and another way is through Pure Later, which they own, I believe, 90% of. And uh, I, I, so some people may say, oh, well, you know, this guy's a sort of right-wing commentator, business guy, and he's going to be anti-union. Uh, and they're right. No, they're not right. Um, <laughs> I believe that unions have a place 
And I believe that they were created for a reason. They help create and support the middle class. There's so many reasons why unions are important for our society and for our workforce. There are some instances where they actually may uh, disrupt an industry or further disrupt an industry at the wrong time. And I bring that up here because the reason the Canada Post is not making money right now is that they are getting wage increases of two and a half percent per year uh, or two percent a year, depending on the year, which is greater than CPI when the organization that they're working for is they have a mature product, which is male, that's dying on the vine. So no demand for that. And what they're trying to do is transition from a company that delivers mail to a company that delivers parcels. They are competing for uh, the parcel business from Amazon, essentially, but all the other e-commerce players. And if you notice when you get an Amazon parcel, uh, you will look at the box and the box says Amazon and it also says T-Force, right? There are a few other companies that uh, deliver Amazon's parcels, but there's one company that is T-Force. T-Force is not paying union wages for the people who are driving their uh, parcels around. They have an Uber-like, some of these delivery companies have an Uber-like model where they pay per parcel and some have employees where they pay, pay a low wage. And so you could argue that, well, it's great that wages are going up. But here's the problem. All that it's going to do is actually going to continue to make Canada Post uncompetitive and it'll actually drive them out of business. It'll make them unable to compete with the other people delivering parcels. And so, um, again, I, I will say, though, I, I, I do want to throw this in. Um, I was going through their results and, and they did say they've you know finally got a new plan with the Postal Union um, and it did result in a loss of one hundred and twenty two million due to expanded eligibility for different benefits that they did in that um, new collective agreement. But they said if they took those out, uh, they still would have reported a loss. You know, fair <laughs> enough. You don't. Fair enough. But that, that's just one That's just one chunk. I mean, it's, it's essentially a labor business, right? And so, I mean, it's sort of a technology business of the sorting centers, but it's essentially a labor business. And you cannot compete in a labor business when your labor cost is 2x everybody else's because the society... Uh, as a whole, may believe in the mail system, unlike our friends to the south of us. Uh, and when mail was the way that you got information, then it was important as a national public service to have a proper mail system. And we would all support uh, paying people a fair wage, a middle class wage, which is, again, what one of the roles of the union. But you are delivering parcels now. And Amazon does not care about that at all. What they care about is driving the price down as much as possible. And so it's not that I don't think in an idealistic world what we would want. It's sort of the reality of who they're competing against. And I just think their labor cost is too high. Okay, Mark, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, Mark, speaking of e-commerce, let's talk about how businesses should be pro approaching their online operations. The pandemic has, as we've discussed on the show, really pushed customers to e-commerce in a way that we've never seen before. And while I think it's safe to say that 
those numbers and the level of e-commerce shopping that we're seeing will go down a little bit. It's clear that the pandemic has brought e-commerce to a level that many companies were not expecting to hit for several years in some cases. So given that we are seeing that shift, how should businesses be thinking about their online operations versus their physical stores? Um, Should companies be shifting that mix? Uh, What do they need to be considering and thinking about? What is the fix here, Mark? The short answer is they need to be uh, thinking about a lot. Uh, It's a complex decision. It is not as easy as it would seem. Uh, One of the lines I came up with as I was preparing was, we should not confuse what people want to do with what they need to do. And we need to remember that uh, there is a segment of the population Uh, If you sort of uh, exclude the good category, which is a big, uh, I'll say, uh, influencer in terms of whether uh, you should be online or not. But if you just sort of said, okay, same good category, uh, some people want to be online and some people want to shop in store. And at some, and again, I talked about this all the time. Whenever we talk about retail, we talk about the segmentation of both consumers and occasions. And so some people at some times want to be online and at other times want to be uh, in store. And one of the myths out there is that young people are all online and old people are all in store. And we've done a lot of detailed consumer research, which proves that while the online shopper does lean younger, it is not, uh, I'll say, a safe assumption to always say that in your category, you know, uh, the old person who's not internet savvy uh, wants to go to the store and the young person wants to buy everything online. So that's one myth. The other myth about online is that it's more efficient. The online world is efficient for Facebook and it's efficient for Google. It is not efficient for retailers, especially ones who are not savvy at managing the customer acquisition cost. So when you are making the decision about whether to be online or in store, one of the things you need to get a handle on is for the people who shop online, what is your customer acquisition cost and what is your customer value? So how much does it take for you to get that first sale? And then how much do you get out of that customer over a reasonable period of time? And then compare that to who you get in store. And there are many categories for which online is the best answer. uh, And there are many categories for which it is not. And so you actually need to understand your category and understand your consumer and and make educated decisions about it. So what kind of categories does it does it work better for uh, doing that shift to online? So um, first of all, let's talk about one of my favorite retailers. And I always say they don't pay me, but maybe they should. Let's talk about Cobb's Bakery. Um, When you go to Cobb's- I thought you were going to say Harry Rosen's, to be honest, because you've brought them up before. (laughs) They're not my favorite. That's a more complex relationship I have with them, uh, which we could talk about also in another show. Um, But uh, I could talk about both of them, okay? Because you brought it up. So Cobb's Bakery- Here's why uh, you're not going to order your bread online from Cobb's, even if they could deliver it efficiently. Because when you walk into Cobb's Bakery, as I do, uh, once a week at least, and now they have one at the cottage and in the city, so, you know, I'm gaining weight everywhere. Game over. Game over. (laughs) Guess what? It smells amazing. Sorry, I'm not supposed to, I'm not supposed to yell in the microphone, but it smells amazing. So here's what, here's what happens. You go in for this and you're going to buy this plus that, right? So you don't want people online to be saying, well, this is what we need because this is how many loaves of sourdough we go through in an average week. It's actually, what do I need? But, oh, wouldn't it be great to get these kids a treat and get them a scone or get them that? So, and that, by the way, that impulse buy, that upsell, of course, I use an example where, uh, where it's extreme because there's incent related to it, but, um, uh, but that applies in many categories. So where you believe that you're getting upsell, 
the online world, as good as Amazon is at algorithms and at uh, promoting something that they think you want, they have not cracked upsell in an online world yet. And so that's one of the drivers. The other driver is uh, just generally speaking, what the need for experience is. Uh, so do you need to touch mm -hmm. the product? Do you need to see the product? Do you need advice on the product? And if you need advice on the product, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, that's no problem. I could just create a video online. I mean, look at Well Simple. I mean, they're fantastic. I mean, they just make these simple instructional videos on how to do uh, financial stuff. And I don't need to see my advisor. I know that's not retail, but it's analogous. Do you know how expensive it is to do things well? Whenever you see an offering that is online or anywhere, or to think of a commercial, the simpler something looks, the more expensive it was to make it look simple. And so it sounds like I am actually advocating that everything should stay in store. I'm not. I'm saying that you just need to be very careful about thinking about what your good category is, who your customers are in the different occasions, and then think about what's right. The easiest, broadest answer is omnichannel will win in the end. And if you're online mm -hmm. today and you're, you have the type of a good category where people buy it in store and you're not getting those people, you may very soon get a great deal on space. Uh, and so you actually may want to find a way to be in store if you're ready for it. And if you have some risk tolerance, if you're in brick and mortar today, chances are uh, in many categories, I mean, the Cobbs example notwithstanding, if you're in many categories, uh, you probably want to use this as a time to modernize and get online. All I'm saying is mm -hmm. don't assume that the whole world's going online because somebody's going to go back. Uh, and the economics for online are really hard. Delivery is expensive. Returns are expensive. Customer acquisition online is expensive. Just think about it carefully. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It actually kind of brings me back to our used car conversation. That was part of, you know, these car auctions might be shifting online, but at some point, someone needs to take a look at that vehicle and, and see it. And that's why I think that has been in part, also a challenge. So I, as you said, it depends on what category you're in. Um, it's not going to, online it's not going to work. That's why I have a car guy. Everyone. He goes and looks at every car I buy. Not that I buy that many. Yeah, I was. Gonna, I said someone has to look someone. at it at some point, right? Even if you aren't, someone is. Right. Um, so, I mean, while we're talking about retail, uh, I mean, a lot of our conversations about retail have been focused on uh, bankruptcies that we're seeing. I mean, you know, at least 25 major retailers in the United States, including we've talked about it before, J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, JCPenney, and in Canada, off the top of my head, uh, Reitman's and David's Tea. Uh, filing for bankruptcy does not mean, as we've also discussed, that that business is done or disappears. But COVID-19 has undoubtedly left businesses in weaker positions than others. Uh, some, however, have managed to really minimize the damage that the pandemic has done. So, Mark, for those retailers um, or businesses that have are so far, you know, have minimized the impact of this pandemic, should they be looking at those um, weaker performers, we'll say, and perhaps be looking to take advantage? I mean, do you think that's a good idea right now? I'd like you, Alicia, to imagine for a moment that you are a polar bear. Uh, and you're, okay. you're a mama polar bear and you are walking on this uh, gigantic sheet of ice as they do or glacier or whatever it's called. And uh, very curious to see where this have, is going. And you have, continue. A you have a cub next to you. Right. And, you know, you read the newspaper like every other polar bear and you know that the population of seals is declining and it's really hard to get food. And off in the distance, you happen to see another polar bear. That's me. 
and I also have a cub. Okay. Let's say I'm a mama polar bear, and I also have a cub, and I'm limping. Here's what you need to do. It's very clear. I mean, you could, uh, you, sorry, let me just talk about your options. Your options. Look at the seal in front of you, split it in two, and give half the seal to this weak, poor polar bear and their cub, or bash that polar bear on the head, let them die quickly and not waste any of that seal and eat that seal for yourself. And I feel like you're telling me to eat the seal and bash you over the there head. Is no option. Am I right here? <laughs> there is no option in business. And by the way, I came up with the polar bear because I was thinking before about lions and gazelles and it's the laws of the jungle. But the issue is lions are in prides and it gets very complicated. Uh, the point is capitalism. I like that you spent a lot of time thinking about I this. I did. Well, That's, I do prepare I really for the like show. It. I mean, uh, <laughs> capitalism was discovered. It was not created. And that's something that is really important to remember. And capitalism was discovered as the best way for people to interact because the free market was discovered and proven to be the most efficient way. And what you don't want to do is waste a dead seal on a polar bear who's going to die anyway. And so if your neighbor is going bankrupt, you need to take their business really quickly and you need to take their employees. Now, you do have to be careful because if they're going to survive, uh, you you know, let's assume for a second that you're in uh, a tightly controlled oligopoly uh, where you have, uh, you know, the construction business in Montreal or the mafia or Canadian banks. So all of these sort of unnatural uh, groups of, uh, of business that really shouldn't survive the way they do. Well, you have to be careful because if someone looks weak but isn't quite weak and you pounce, then all of a sudden you've disrupted this code where you all protect each other and let each other live with unbelievably egregious profit. Um, but if they're going to die anyway, if CIBC suddenly was going to die, although the government would never let it because it's not a properly functioning system, um, yeah. they, I just want to also be clear. I saw, I heard you sneak the mafia in there. That is, we do not endorse a comparison of the banks and construction to the mafia, just to be clear. No, you don't endorse it, which is why I'm here, because the Canadian banks are not a properly functioning uh, free market. Neither is the mafia, neither is construction in Montreal. And they have a sort of cozy thing where they all sort of help each other. But if one were weak, suddenly you could be sure that the others would say it's time to pounce and get rid of them. Because that's the, but you, you, but when you're, they're not weak. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is you have to actually make sure that they're weak because if you pass them when they're not weak and then you actually need to cooperate with them and kidding aside, there are other industries where there's a sort of unwritten rule. Uh, we had a client recently, uh, in the distribution business and, uh, they talked about their competitors. They don't really steal from each other. Uh, but then there was one competitor in that industry. I won't say the industry, uh, and that competitor was really weak. And we said, are you going to buy them? And they said, no, because we have enough share that when they die naturally, we're going to get their share. And so if they, uh, because the customers would come to us instead of go to them. And so uh, if that customer, if that competitor of theirs were having a bad year, well, they may actually reach out to them and, and make friends because they know in the long term it's good. But when it's clear they're going to die, they actually have no choice for the functioning of the system. Uh, to actually, they have no choice but to, but to kill them quicker and take their spoils before someone else does, especially today, because there are fewer spoils out there. And so you need to make sure that, uh, it, you know, they're not, there are very rarely two competitors. And so if there are three competitors and one's dying and the one of you lets the other one take the spoils, then all of a sudden 
two, if you know, two eats one and you're three and two stronger, then two is going to come after you next. So wait, okay. laws of the jungle. Well, I think that I'm just going to, the laws of the jungle. Um, I'm going to leave that there. Uh, I have a funny feeling I'm going to be getting emails from PETA, Montreal Construction Companies, the banks, <laughs> after this episode. Mark at sapdown.ca. Uh, no problem. Send them my way. <laughs> Okay. Um, if you want to rewatch this episode again or get the latest coronavirus economic news, you can check out Yahoo Finance Canada. Uh, we're also a podcast, so make sure you check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and like us and subscribe. And if you have any questions for me or want to rant at Mark about anything that he said on this show, you can shoot me an email or Mark. Uh, I'm at A-L-I-C-J-A at yahoofinance.com. Thank you for tuning in. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.